Turn with me, please, into uh, John's Gospel again. John's Gospel continuing <coughs> in chapter 14. John's Gospel and chapter 14. And just those opening words once more, please. Let not your heart be troubled. Now go down to verse 27. Again he says it at the last part of the verse, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Notice the addition there, please. Neither let it be afraid. In the chapter 16... And verse 33, (coughs) 16 and verse 33, the Lord says, Be of good cheer, be of good comfort, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Now go to chapter 15. I, verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman, the vine dresser. (coughs) Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now this morning we're going to look particularly at these thoughts yet again, but there's so much more in them still. And I want you to go to chapter 16 and verse 33, where it says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, trouble, in other words, serious trouble, affliction, and burdens to bear but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So what you've got is peace in a world of tribulation. You might say opposing ideas, but nonetheless, this is what we'll consider this morning. How can we live in the midst of tribulation and still know what it means to have peace? And we're not going to look at any fancy sort of notions or ideals, but rather look at things that have a firm foundation as they are set before us in the word of God. Because we notice that in verse 1 of chapter 14 when he said, let not your heart be troubled. Now I find those words, and I have found those words in recent weeks to be such a a strength. They're beautiful, they're reassuring, they have tremendous strength in them. Because they're not just an empty platitude, it's not just a suggestion. What he says, he He bases it on firm, firm reasons because what he says is, you believe on me. Let's read it there. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. First of all, he's saying, you believe on who I am. You believe in God, that's exactly who I am. I am the eternal God. I am God over all, blessed forever. You believe in who I am. Rest in that. Lean on that. Stay firm, grounded in that fact. My person, who I am. And then he says, you believe on what I say. For he says, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. 
You see, I will always speak truth to you. If it's good, I will tell you. But if it's bad, I will also tell you. I won't cover it over. You can rely entirely upon what I say. Rely, believe on me who I am. Believe on me, my word and what I say. Then he says, you can believe on the work that I do. You can rest everything there and never be troubled. It's not you, it's not your work, it's not what you do. Rest on what I do. For he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Learn to rest on my person who I am. My word what I say and my work that I do. Then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So he said, you can rely firmly and rest on my promise, the promise that I make. And that's what we rest on this morning. We're resting on who he is, what he has said, the work that he has done, the promises that he has given. So therefore, we can afford to allow this word into our souls. Let not your heart be troubled. We're resting on the things that are eternal. He is the eternal God. He is that. And not only that, his word is the eternal word. Yeah, they will never pass away. His work, it will never need to be repeated. It's eternal. It's done once and for all. And his promises, they are yea and amen in our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're resting on those eternal things that can never, never be shaken. And the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And in verse 27, he goes further. He says, Never, he said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Never let fear rule you, because fear and faith cannot coexist, even in times of shaking and of trouble in a troubled world. He says in verse chapter 16, in the world you shall have tribulation. You will. You will face trouble, you will face affliction. Just as sure as the sparks fly upwards, you will find that there's trouble in life. Life is cyclical. Life has its seasons. There is joy. There is pain. There is a time to weep just as much as there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn just as much as there's a time for dancing. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to cease from embracing. There is a cycle in life and come what may, we will face times of trouble. But these verses give us great hope. Because, again, when he says be of good cheer, it's, it's based on a firm foundation. It's not just a sort of casual platitude and cheer-up message. He said, I've overcome the world. You know, I've trodden the path before you, and there's nothing you will face that I have not already faced. And what I want to look at particularly is in the world, you shall have tribulation. The trials, the temptations, all those troubles that come on you in life and the Christian life. And how is it that we can live in the midst of a troubled world and in the midst of our own personal troubles at times and yet not be troubled? Facing trouble, I say, without being troubled. Now, I don't mean we're Stoics. Come on. We're not Stoics. You know what a Stoic is? A Stoic is it doesn't matter what happens. He just sort of grins and bears. He's sort of firm, fixed kind of face and he moves on. Something really funny happens, something to really rejoice in. No, no, he's just a straight face, keep going, unmoved, untouched. And then there comes trouble and everybody's upset and weeping. And No, 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 don't show it. Just keep moving as though you're made of rock. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. The Christian 
is not a stoic, but never should we be overwhelmed. That's the point. This is important because very often we do actually fall to pieces under pressure. If you haven't done that, done that sometime, well, I can assure you, you haven't known too much about trouble or pressure. You do feel completely overwhelmed. Whereas scripture actually talks all the time about overcoming. That's the whole point. Overcoming is the point. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. It's not that you won't have the trouble. It's not that you won't have that which could overwhelm you. But the truth is, the secret lies in the fact that the word of God teaches us that we can be overcomers. Now, he does face the truth, the Lord Jesus. He doesn't make it into a pretty picture living life. It's not a pretty picture. It has its good days. It has its joys. It has its wonders. It has its time when we're really grateful. And there are other times when the thunderclouds burst. So he says, in the world ye shall have tribulation. That's what he says in chapter 16 there. But he, he doesn't stop in his teachings through the upper room because he's leaving them in this kind of plight. And he doesn't tell them just that they'll have their troubles, but he actually tells them why you will be having difficulty and trouble in the world in which you live. He tells them that you'll have trouble from people that are unsaved and out from outside. But he doesn't just say you'll have trouble. He tells them why they will have trouble. He says, actually, those folk that are not Christians are not saved, they know not the Father nor me. And you know something? It really helps you. It really helps me when people can be who are not saved may really turn on you for all sorts of reasons, but they're not saved, and you think, well, I can understand why they are like they are because they know not the Father nor me, the Lord Jesus says. They haven't got that light. They haven't got the veil taken away <coughs> for them to perceive the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is masterly, <coughs> right? Masterly the way the Lord Jesus goes through and gives them bases on which they can rest and reasons for troubles that come. The scripture's full of them. I call this, if I might be allowed to say, I call it very good medicine. I see it as the hand of the great physician. You know, in medicine, there's two sides. There's the science of medicine, but there's the art of medicine. And you will discover, and it's completely true, that when it comes to a patient, whatever it is, they're going to have certain treatments. You know, they find it all very different and all very strange and all very alarming. But when you explain to them what's going on, right? Or they have a particular illness that, they're suddenly confronted with it. They don't understand, and it's all very worrying. And, but if you can explain to them what is going on, what to expect, and why, you find they face and handle the situation far, far better. That's the art of medicine, not just the science of it. The science of it is that you better get it right, all right? But the art of it is how you see the patient through the trauma of whatever there is. You know, you hear it often in the hospital, well, what's going on? What's going on? You know, you take my little boy out there with a bump on the head and you don't tell me anything. What's going on? What's going on? When you understand reasons, when you understand what to expect, you find that there's a certain peace comes to you. Now, that's exactly how the great physician treats us in our troubles, in our woes, in our afflictions, and in our difficulties. He tells us and explains the basis and the reason and what to expect. We'll open that up as we go. But he also says something else about trouble here, which I, I want to just touch on, just touch as I pass. He makes it very clear that trouble should never come to a believer from within the Christian circle. It never should. 
you or I, I should never be the cause of real affliction and burden and trouble and sorrow to you because of my behavior. And you should never be to me because of your behavior. What do you mean, he used to say? Because it happens too often, doesn't it? There's trouble in the Christian circle from other Christians. Well, the Lord, in the middle of all of this, he suddenly says, look, I want to give you a new commandment. This new commandment is that you should love one another even as I have loved you. You see that? That doesn't bring affliction and trouble to another believer. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just trying to be, we only say nice things to each other and affirm each other and boost up each other's ego. There comes a time when you might need to say something to me that may cut me because there's something about me that I need to have adjusted and put right. Well, if you love me, you will tell me. And if you love me, you will help me through that situation. You won't avoid and pretend any more than your heavenly father. When he sees you unfruitful and sees me unfruitful, he pretends that the branch looks so pretty and is so nice and I wouldn't hurt anybody. He takes the knife, the pruning knife, and he cuts it because he knows it's for your good. Love always does good to the other. That's the point of it. It doesn't just make people feel good. It does you good. And if you need to tell me something for my good, and you're only seeking my good, then you can well be loving me in what you do. There are always ways on how to do it. But remember that. He brings it in so that it should never come from the Christian circle. But then he gives uh, that in, invaluable insight in chapter 15 as to why so much pain does come from life. And I've just mentioned it there. We have a heavenly Father. We have a heavenly Father who actually cares about us who in whose hand is not only the outpouring of blessing and comfort and strength, but in whose hand is a pruning knife. And he will cut when there needs to be a cutting so that things might turn out for our good and we are able the more to bear fruit for God. And often behind every pain that comes into our lives, is the loving hand of a heavenly father who carries the pruning knife, knowing it's so necessary for our good, for his glory, for our service and for his worship. There are things that have to be changed and things that have to be done. And behind the pain and the difficulties and the discouragement of the Christian life, very often lies the pruning hand of a father who cares and wants us to bear more fruit. Now stop there because if you can grasp that in your trouble, whatever your trouble is, if you can realize and see there's something of the hand of God in it, I tell you, it'll take away your confusion, it'll take away your doubts and your fears and your dismay, and it'll help you in your pain to realize that eventually it comes for your good. Now, I don't doubt there's many of you here today and many of us here today you look back and you see that the real tragedies and problems and trials and pains that you've had in the past and somehow or other you've come to the point where there's no doubt about it, out of it there came good. And you remember it in the present trial and what you find is you get peace and you get peace in the midst of the problems. You will start to cope when you realise in it, in every trial and tribulation, there lies the hand of God. A trial has been allowed by God. Or you say, but Satan did it as a trial has been allowed by God no matter what hand he allows it to cause it to come or means. 
You realise there is purpose in the trial. You start to learn that there's something that I can learn in and from every single trial. Actually, you realise that whatever situation you find yourself in, you didn't get there by chance, you didn't just get there because of the devil, you got there because of the overruling, permissive hand of God who brings things into our lives that are meant for our blessing. And he uses trials for our good and thus preserves my soul. If you can just look past your own despair and dismay for a moment and look to God, and you'll realize then that nothing e'er by chance befalls, the one whom God in purpose calls, in whom his grace is found. You'll see things, life's occurrences, in a completely different light. And one day, when you get home to glory, and with the Lord you look back on it all, when we reach the end of life's brief day, and with him look back on all the way, you'll bless the hand that dealt each blow upon the marble here below in working out his will. Now, if you face your troubles like that, I tell you, it puts a new light on them altogether. Because it is true to say, and it is absolutely true, in every trial there is a hidden blessing that God intends you and I to have. He reverses the negative into the positive. Yes, Satan with unerring hate and accuracy takes a flaming dart, doesn't he? And he fires it with all its ferocity. And it's aimed at you to cut into your faith, to cut into your peace, to disturb your soul, to turn your back. On the front of it, there's a poison tip. And the feathers behind are flaming fire. And it's like the Almighty puts out his hand, the hand of God, stops it mid-flight and removes the poison and quenches the fire and lets it go on its way. And it strikes its target. But it's got the hand of God put on it and it comes and turns it into blessing for our good. Now, this helps us better. Because you'll find that then, when you understand that, when you start to to think like this and realize the teaching of scripture on this, you'll find that the tears that you maybe are shedding, you know, you'll find they'll dry up. You will. And the pain that you feel, and you can feel real pain if you're human. We're not stoics. You'll find that'll be soothed. Your spirit that can be so troubled, it, it'll start to be calm. And you'll find it is true, your heart does not need to be troubled. Neither need you fear you'll start on the road of overcoming. You will find a blessing in every trial. And at the end of it all, and sometimes indeed in the middle of it all, you'll say, well, glory to God. There's something blessed in this. The old saints, you know, when trials came, that's how they used to face them in their persecution. As you read history, they, they just rejoice to think there's here's an opportunity to prove something of the blessing of God. And you will discover that that which was intended for evil, God will make good. Joseph, you know the Joseph line, don't you? Beautiful. You, man, he said, you thought evil towards me. God made it for good. And if we could really get saturated in this teaching, in this that what the, the Lord has said and recorded in the word of God, you'll get to the point where you might get to the point, I might one day get to the point, where I can say with Paul in Romans 5, I glory in tribulation. Imagine that. We all like the nice days, the sunshine, and the fine weather, and the blessings that make us rejoice and feel good. 
But he says, I glory when things are in the reverse. I glory, he says, in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience. Patience, endurance. Endurance works faith and works hope. That's the end of, of the whole thing. You see, you've got to get to the point where you realize that he does know us. That's what we said this morning. He really knows our down-sitting and our uprising. He knows our beginning and he knows our end. And he knows the way that we take. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. Now come to that. There's nothing ere by chance befalls the one whom God in purpose calls. Nothing. Nothing happens by chance in your life. Nothing is out of the control of God. And you say, my times are in your hand. Why should I doubt or fear? For a father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Do you realize that? You've not wept once, but that God has ultimately allowed it to happen as your heavenly father, with all the kindness and desire of a father for his child or for his son, the pruning knife has come, and there's something to be learned, something to be cut out, maybe even something to be grafted in but something that he would bring him more glory and honour. It's summed up, as I've said once before, but it came to me only a few weeks ago. When you get to understand that, life takes a a completely different hue. I do remember, and I'll just say this in passing, my father taught me many things. He wasn't a great theologian, he wasn't a great preacher, he wasn't a prominent man, he wasn't a whatever, lots of things where you could say no, but he taught me things, not because he was a theologian or a great preacher, but he taught me things because he lived his faith. Now, that's the difference, you know. Now, he wasn't a brave man. He was not. He was not a medical man, that's for sure. He cut hair. He's a barber. And he used to fear illness. He really did. He had no understanding of it at all. And I remember as of early 60s, when I, I took him to hospital because there was something seriously wrong. And... As I left him in intensive care, I remember he suddenly put his hand out, and he wasn't a demonstrative man. In those days, we didn't talk much to each other, did we? We kept our feelings in. And he just held me by the hand for a moment. He says, don't worry, Paul. Fear not. We are in God's hands. Now, if you can do that in the time of trouble, I tell you, that's faith. You know, he died 10 days later. And I always remember that man, he died in faith. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Look, pure in heart, you think, oh, well, I've got to be absolutely sinless and sin-free. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. If you and I, with with all our failures and struggle and mixtures, and we are a a great mix-up, come on, you know. (laughs) It's easy to see everybody else as a mix-up, but you wake up to yourself eventually and you're the mix-up, all right. But with all of that, there's something within you that, You genuinely want to serve God. You do that. (coughs) You genuinely want to bear fruit. That's your real heart's desire. Well, I tell you, you will see God in all of your circumstances. The pure in heart sees God in everything. (coughs) Every joy? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thank God for that. And in every sorrow. Every pleasure? Oh, yes. Thank God for that. In every pain. In every success, well, it's great when you're winning, but in every failure. My times are in your hand, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. That's where you rest. 
That's how you grow. That's how you understand what it means that your heart doesn't get troubled, even in the presence and midst of trouble. Now let's go further than that. <coughs> the Lord doesn't promise us freedom from trouble. He says that. He says in the world you're going to have it. All right. But he does promise lots of things about our trials and our troubles. And I want to just mention four of them. First of all, we've covered it. There is blessing in every trial. He will take Satan's dart and he will turn it into a dart of blessing. Right. He will bring good out of evil. He will make us bear more fruit. And he will scourge us for our good. All right, as a heavenly father. <clears throat> that you can be completely resting in as a promise that it will happen if you just go through the trial with the Lord. What he does do, you see, he promises his presence in every trouble. And that, to me, is absolutely beautiful. And it is true. Very often when you're at wit's end corner, you know, when you are really pushed, it's then that the presence of the Lord becomes more sweet to you than it maybe than it did when you were having such a good time. Because trouble really for the believer is meant to press them into the arms of God. Whereby we more diligently seek out the Lord and we just get that, we just know that we need him. Our own weakness is such that we desperately need him. The enemy is so strong, the feelings are such turmoil that we need him. And we know the sweetness of his presence. And the beauty is there's a promise there. When you pass, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And that experience, which often is only touched on in a particular way, in a time of trouble, is sweet to the soul. It's so reassuring to the faith. It leaves strength, gives you strength to be an overcomer. Troubles are meant to drive us deeper into the heart of God. Never to drive us away from him and cause us to sin. Never. <clears throat> That's something that we will deal with in a minute. But people do get into trouble and then they blame God and they walk away from their faith and they do all sorts of things. And they think, we think, oh yes, well we can understand that because they've had such a hard time. No, 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 no. The scripture never, never teaches that. You're in trouble at the moment, fellow Christian. Please cry out for mercy. Cry out to the Lord to remember you in your weakness and your sorrow. Read the Psalms. Look at David's tears. God's taken them and bottled them for us, if you like. Kept them on a record. Those experiences and prayers that came out from the soul as he was in such anguish and in so many terrible situations. So he promises to be with us in the trouble, the trial. <clears throat> but he also promises to control the extent or the intensity of the trial. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And the floods, they shall not overflow thee. All right? So he's in control of how far the hand of Satan goes. How far the hand of maybe your enemy goes. How far maybe the, the, the hand of the, uh, non, the, the persecuting non-Christian goes. Ultimately, there's that overarching arm of God. The floods shall not overflow thee. And in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13... You get a, a great instruction on this, a really good instruction on in the trials. Chapter 10 and verse 13, he says these incredible things. <clears throat> First of all, there's no temptation, no tribulation, if you like, no affliction, no trial, which has taken you, which has come upon you, which is common, 
which is not common to man, but such as is common to man. Now, that you want to hold on to that firstly, because sometimes when you feel completely overwhelmed with a situation, you think, oh, this is incredible. Nobody's been through this before. <laughs> Nobody's felt as bad as me. Stop, stop. We're in, a, we're in a fallen world and part of a fallen creation, and this is the lot of mankind, just as it's the lot of the believer. All right, number one. But, he says, God is faithful. Now, that's beautiful, see? That stops you from being overwhelmed straight away. And in times of trouble, you prove the faithfulness of, of God in a way that strengthens your faith, I would almost say, like nothing else. God is faithful. Yes, true, the floods will not overwork flow, flow me. He will not suffer you to be tempted or tried above what you are able. All right, now get this in your mind. But with the trial or the temptation, he will also make a way to escape. Right? Now you say, I can't cope anymore. Yes, you can. You say, but you don't know me. I can't. I'm telling you, you can. Because if you couldn't, you would, the Lord would not tempt you above what you're able to bear. You say, well, what will he do? I say, he'll make a way of escape. You say, that's good. I'll, I'll be able to get out of it. Actually, that's, it may happen that way. And often the Lord does intervene in a remarkable way and take the trial away from you, right? But that's actually not the teaching quite here. He says he'll make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it or to endure it. So he's saying here, really, that at that point where you think you're being overwhelmed, he will never take you past the point of coping because at that point of your weakness... He will bring something in to enable you to continue through the situation until you re reach the completion of it, right? And the crowning point of it, the lesson that you were meant to learn in it and what you were meant to take from it and how he was to reveal himself to you in it. Until the point of the lesson is learnt and reached and you've got the full blessing, he will enable you to continue through it. The way of escape will be giving you the strength to persevere in it until you gain the most of the blessing out of it. The strength to persevere in it. Because we go through troubles not in our own strength. You are automatically brought to a sense of your own weakness and you look for your resources above to God. Faith is strengthened as you look to God. And you find that his promises are true. There is a way of escape, a means by which he will give you the strength to endure. Because the very strength of God that's available for the Christian is so powerful. It's the same strength which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Do you realize that? The resurrection power of God in his Son is available to us who believe, he says in Ephesians in chapter 3. And if you've been in the trial and you've proved his strength in a most miraculous way, you'll read that verse about the, the power that he, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand is to us who will believe. And you'll say, praise God, that is absolutely true. And so, there is the point. He is faithful, he delivers, he controls, he teaches, we learn, there is pain, but remember there is no excuse for sinning in the trial. We'll 
And no excuse at all. Please say, let me say that. Because often you do. You say, oh, well, you know, you can understand that fellow going and turning into a drunkard. Um, oh, he's a good Christian bloke, but, you know, he, the drink got him. But then look at his life and all the hardships he went through. And we get all sympathetic about it. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm not without compassion or sympathy. But don't use those sorts of things as excuse for yourself to sin. That's what I mean. And we say, oh, well, so-and-so, look at him. He was going on so well, but he had a bad church experience, didn't he? Oh, such a bad church experience. It's no wonder he's turned against the church. And Oh, well, yeah, that's what you'd expect. No. No. It's not right. Otherwise, if it's, not, if it's right, then what we've just read is not true. We've forgotten that God is faithful. God is faithful. And to whom is a, who is able to keep us from falling. And then he goes, the last promise is, there are times when he does deliver. The promise is this, in Second Peter... The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trouble. He does know how to do it. Just as he knows how to be with you in it, so also there comes times when he delivers you from it. And you must admit, you have surely seen in life where you think of what could have been a disaster and he delivered you out of it. You saw the intervening hand of God over his child. Maybe it was Satan was going to attack in all his desire to destroy. Maybe he used whatever he used, whatever instrument he used, circumstances that he used, or whoever he used. No, and God just stood in between and said, no, you don't. You're not touching my child. He knows how to deliver the godly out of trouble. So those are <clears throat> some of the promises that he gives in trial. And I, we have actually made a bit of a mistake in our thinking in the last few decades. It's been very prevalent in the, the teachings. That, that somehow, you know, the Christian has a relatively, a relatively trouble-free life. Or, you know, troubles, they're sort of a bit minor once you're a Christian. I mean, you could easily overcome them. And besides which, you know, God is a God of love and blessing and he doesn't really want us to have troubles. Well, if that's the case, he's not the heavenly husband. All right. And you'd end up, we have equated God's blessing with comfortable living. Now, that's not the message of the Bible. It's a, it's a very attractive message, but it's a very bad, a very bad misconception. You actually equate God's blessing with comfortable living. All right? I remember some years ago, I did a particular business deal which was actually very successful, and I thought it was great. It's great. And I was telling somebody else who was a Christian, I said, oh, this was incredible. Look what turned up out of this. Ah, he goes, Paul, you see, the Lord's like that. He said, um, he's seen how busy you've been and he's, he's seen how much work you've done for him and now he says, it's Paul's time. You know, he's got to, I'm going to give him a little bit of good things, he says, and he gave me some money. And I thought, oh dear, <laughs> I'd rather have treasure in heaven. <laughs> That's the teaching of the Bible. Money can be a total curse. But the whole concept that that was somehow a sign of God's extra special blessing, you, but go easy, you know. But that's the mentality we've got. We don't even expect ill health anymore, do we? Really and truly, I mean, that was all dealt with in the atonement, and we've got healing, we can heal. We do not expect to be sick. We don't expect financial hardship. I mean, the Lord blesses you, doesn't he? He makes you rich. We don't expect to be rejected and not regarded and not respected by other people. I mean, let's have some sort of self-worth and some sort of self-esteem and some sort of reason for being where we are. You know, we don't expect these things. And as for Satan, well, yeah, of course, Satan's a problem, but, you know, 
it's not too bad because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Oh, yes, you just, that's it. That fixes the satanic problem. It puts him right on his back, you know? And besides which, we can rebuke him. We can bind him. A lady said that to me some years back. She said, oh, yes, but I've learned how to bind Jesus, how to bind Satan in Jesus' name. I thought, well, he didn't say tied up for too long, did he? You get me? And you remember Moses, when he was disputing, or Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. That's a mysterious verse, but there was an argument going on. But he durst not bring a railing accusation against Satan. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. Be very careful, all right? Be very careful. Never make light of Satan. He is the adversary, our adversary, the Christian's adversary, and he's a lion, all right? I've never seen a lion quenched yet by patting him on the head or by ignoring him. And he does go about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is real. He's alive and well, as it were, on earth. His power is mighty. He's mightier than we. And to get the notion that somehow or other, you know, Satan's a minor problem, stop. And then we've got other twisted ideas. We say, well, I mean to say, we can pray. And prayer answers everything. It's like a a handle that we turn around where we get what we want, when we want, and how we want. I mean, that's not prayer. Prayer is you on bent knees, seeking the mind and will of God, the protection and the power and the strength of God, and just wanting to be in the hands of God, not telling him what to do and how to solve your problem and to make everything good. And you say, oh, but he said, if I pray believing, and Lord, I'm believing, I'm believing for this, I'm believing for this, you've got to do it, because you said, if you pray for believing, you'll do it. And you also said, if I ask anything in your name, you will do it. So, God, you've got to do it. And besides this, God, you made a promise. And I'm telling you about that promise, and I'm reminding you about that promise. I'm demanding that you do what you promised, and I'm doing it in faith because I'm believing. That's not the life of the believer lived in the hand of God. It is so upside down. It is so back to front. It is such a complete confusion, a misconception about what it's all about. The truth is, regardless of all these magic magic, uh, spells, I was going to use the word, but formula that we like to use and somehow twist scripture all around, the fact is that through much tribulation, we will enter the kingdom of God. And in that trial, you'll find God. In that trial, you'll find your faith will be refined. In that trial, you'll find the branch that looked so proud that you were so pleased about got cut clean off. It was never going to bring fruit anyway. It was just going to make you look good and you'll be pleased all about yourself. Instead of that, God says, I want you not to show yourself. I want you to show me. And so often that comes through trial. trial. All right, let's just look again. The reactions that come because of these misconceptions and because of our own lack of understanding. You know, sometimes it's a surprise when we get into trouble. I'm talking about proper trouble in a minute, right? And you, you think, well, why is this happening to me? You know, oh, I really don't deserve this. I, I just don't deserve this. And yet you're so surprised. And then because it's all about me in today's world, you start to go on and you get into that... You tell everybody about it, all the trouble you're having, all the woes and the injustices and the struggle you're going through and you start to look for sympathy and you you make yourself the centre of attention and you go online and you tell everybody your woes and, hey, stop it and go to the Lord and tell him about it. And then listen to what he has to say and bow to his will and go through the trouble with him 
not by a cheer squad surrounding you, making you the centre of attention. There's a lot of attention-seeking behaviour in the world today. Self-aggrandizement, yes. Take care it doesn't seep into our... We take care it doesn't seep into our spiritual life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting there shouldn't be fellowship in prayer. We pray for one another in our troubles. But don't turn that thing out of all proportion and make yourself into a pity hero. Some people live on their woes. All right? When you're a doctor, you know people who make trade out of their illness. They never get better. (laughs) Because there's point and value in staying sick. And the minute you cure one thing, they'll pop up with another one. Pardon me, but that's our human nature. Because it's the world, it's all about me and my woes and getting attention. So just be careful with your reaction to trouble. Be sure it doesn't drive you only to others to pray. Be careful you make sure it drives you into the very arms of God who will give you that way of escape enabling you to endure. So you've got surprise, you've got self-pity. The other thing is you can get very angry when things go wrong, especially when it's complete injustice. That can make you really angry. You did not deserve it or you did not do it. And you can have that sense of anger against your circumstances. Look, never do that because your circumstances and mine are ordered by God. God is sovereign. We are where we are because of the hand of God. You say, but he'd never want me to be here. Well, he put you there, so he must have wanted you to be there. And when you've learnt the lesson of why you are where you are, then he may well move you on to another situation or circumstance. But faith just lives like that in the hand of God. And when you get angry, be careful, because it's when you're angry that you'll sin. That's true. It's when you're angry that you'll sin. And if you're not careful, you'll get bitter. And if you're not even more careful, you'll be looking out to get revenge on the... The, the one who did the wrong to you, or the, the, whoever it is. You get the idea? You must, if you find your heart full of revenge, you're definitely wrong, and you're missing the point of the trouble. Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. End of story. You never take revenge on others for wrongs they have done to you. Never. Right? I mean, <laughs> you get angry, you'll get distorted. That's the story of Jonah, isn't it? I mean, what? Jonah's a tragedy at the end of his life. God says, you go and preach to the Ninevites. He says, oh, I'm not doing that. They're terrible. They're the worst people on earth. Uh, not, not them. So he won't go. But then he's made to go. And then when he does go, what happens? The Ninevites repent. These wretched enemies of the Lord, the worst and most violent people on the planet at that time, they repent. And Jonah gets all upset about it. He does. He gets angry. He gets Actually, he gets angry with God. And he said, I knew you'd do this. That's why I never wanted to go. I want to see them dead. They deserve it. That's what should happen. That's justice. God says, well, I show mercy. And Jonah says, oh, I'm angry. I, I'm angry unto death. And the Lord says, doest thou well to be angry? I don't know. You're not angry, are you? Doest thou well to be angry? Careful. And what does he do? He goes and builds a little tent, and he sits on the hill, and he looks over the city of Nineveh and says, Ahem. yet 40 days, and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. I'll sit here, and I'll watch it happen, and I'll like it. Well, of course, you know what happens, don't you? The Lord's very kind to Jonah, and he says, look, I'll I'll put a bush, I'll make it grow overnight so that it shelters you from the heat. And, oh, Jonah's really happy about that. Things are going well for him. 
And so he sits there and then the Lord kills the bush and he takes it away and the, the wind blows and the steaming heat comes and Jonah's sitting there and the sweat's pouring out of him and he's so uncomfortable and he's, he's, he's getting dehydrated but he's not got to give in. Why? Because he's still angry. And the Lord says, doest thou well to be angry? I do well to be angry unto death. You see, how stupid you can be when you get angry. Look where it leads you. I mean, the, the book of Jonah ends with you thinking, oh, the poor old prophet. He never got it right when he got asked to go, and he never got it right when he did go and got the, got the results of so many people being blessed. 120,000 people, all right, repenting, <coughs> becoming the people of God. <coughs> and he said, you expected me. You, you're angry because one little weed died. Oh, it'd have been really sad if all those people had been lost. Now you're angry because they're not lost. Never get angry with God, please. You are never right if you are angry with God. Sorry, I do not buy into the theology of the last 15 years where people were told it was all right to argue with God and it was all right to get angry with God. I mean, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't, um, the word's gone for a minute. Didn't Habakkuk get angry with God when he heard about the Ninevites were going to come in, the most violent of the lot, the most wicked people of all, and God would use them to scourge his people? And Habakkuk, he said, he went up into his high tower and he wanted to, demanded of the Lord what he was doing. Come on, I don't believe a word of that. I think the man was overwhelmed that the Lord would do such a thing because the Lord said to him, when I do do something, you're gonna, I'm going to do something that you won't even believe in. You'll be so flabbergasted. And he was. And he went up in his prayer and he was calling out to God, you're really going to do this to your people. I don't see anger and argument and all that kind of thing. I really am not prepared to take it. You are not right to be angry with God. They say Job was angry with God. No, he wasn't. He argued with God. He remonstrated. He pleaded. He looked for a cause. He talked and talked. And when did things come right? When he stopped talking. Faith leaves themselves in the hand of God. Because what happens from here on, we keep going like this and you end up with discouragement. <coughs> now that's a terrible outcome to trouble, is discouragement. <coughs> this is one of Satan's serious weapons. You see, a discouraged soul is actually useless to God. Have you ever thought that? When you've been really discouraged. What have you done? You've sat down, haven't you, and you've done nothing. You actually end up useless for God. Despondent, discouraged, you give up. That's exactly what Israel said. When they found themselves down in Babylon, of all places to live, he said, what do they say? We sat down by the waters of Babylon and we hung our harps on the willow tree. And we said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Oh, we all give up. There's no worship, no praise. The harp has no place anymore. We're in such an awful situation and a dreadful circumstance. There's nothing to give thanks and to worship for. They hang their harp on a tree. And they sit down. Ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever got to that point where you've you got nothing to say to the Lord? That's a tragedy. You've gone the wrong way, you know. It's the very time to take your harp and start to pray and praise and give God thanks and then cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain thee. That's the way of escape, you see. That's the way of escape. <clears throat> it's like John on the Isle of Patmos. You remember? There he was in Patmos. It was a terrible place. He probably ended his life there, one of the worst penal places you could be. And he was on in Patmos, right? But he was on Mount Zion. Look at all the songs he told us about that he saw in those visions. He was in Patmos, but he was on Zion. That's right. 
So he didn't hang his harp. No. David, in all his troubles, what did he do with his harp? He wrote his psalms. You see that? He didn't hang his harp on the widow tree. He used it in that music that was a special gift of his, whereby he played the harp and he could write his psalms, pour out his heart in worship, thanksgiving, cry out from his soul in his need and have it written in scripture so that we can get the blessing from it. To be discouraged and to stay there is so dangerous that that response can even be worse and more crippling than if we sin in the situation. Now, that's a bit strong what I've just said, but I will explain what I mean by that. We fall and sin in the time of trouble and trial. You know what can happen, and it does happen. You, You come to that point of repentance. And in weeping, you weep your way back to the cross where there is restoration and blessing, and you press forward in the name and the arm of the Lord. But when you're discouraged, you don't even get up and start to move in the right direction. You just sit in a puddle of self-pity and you are lost because your vision is lost. You sit in despair. Satan loves it. Satan loves it. But I just want to say to somebody this morning who might be discouraged, can I just say this to you? The Lord knows it. He he understands that. He actually sympathizes with that and he actually brings you out of your discouragement by his mighty hand of kindness. If you don't believe that, read the story of Elijah. Elijah the prophet, you remember him? What did he do? Did he get discouraged? Yeah, he did, really. Remember the time he went and sat under the juniper tree? And everybody says, oh, he indulged in self-pity. Actually, my Bible's got a note on the side that says, Elijah indulging in self-pity. I get furious about those things. What a cheek. Who are we to say what Elijah was doing? We say that about Peter, you know, and all the mistakes he made and blah, blah, blah. And he warmed himself by the fire. He denied the Lord and he spoke out of turn. It's so we're going to write to criticize. You stand in Elijah's shoes. You stand in his shoes. That man was a fiery prophet. He'd stood there on the mountain, hadn't he? And he defied the prophets of Baal. He told them, you just build your altar. You build your sacrifice. You get it all ready and then you call on the name of Baal, your God, and ask him to light the fire for you. Ha, ha, he, he, nothing will happen. Sure enough, nothing happened. They danced all day. They cut themselves. They prayed. He said, oh, I think your God must have fallen asleep. Or maybe he's gone on a little holiday and he can't hear you, you know? And then out he comes in all the fire of God, if I could put it that way. And he builds an altar and he pours water on it so that it's soaking wet, so that the impossible cannot, the possible, the burning can't happen. It's impossible. He makes it harder and harder and harder. And then as a true prophet of God and a man of faith, he stands before the multitude of those prophets. Was it 120 of them or 240? I can't remember which. And he called on the name of the God who answers by fire. He says, if God is God, then let the fire burn and let the altar, the, the, the wood be brought up as an altar. And, and the flame came down and the fire burned. And Jezebel says, I'll get you. That foul fiend. And here's the man. He's been, he's been in the work of God. He's been facing the forces of evil and spiritual darkness. The powers that had invaded into the, la- the people of Israel and the people of God had taken them away. He faced them in their fullness and in their fury. The, the spiritual energy, the emotional draining, the, the, the physical, the spiritual, the physical also that had been taken out of the man. Suddenly this woman's after him. And he's got to go straight from that appearance, running for his life. And he gets to a juniper tree and he falls down under it and he says, Lord, I'm no better than my father's. He says, look, I, I, I've just given up. I want to die. 
Oh, Elijah, you failure. Oh, we say that's when his ministry came to an end. What a way to end your ministry, Elijah. Full of self-pity. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. He falls asleep. He wakes up. He looks at the fire that he put out that night. And there sitting there is a, coal, is a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water. He eats and drinks. He falls asleep. He eats and drinks. Falls asleep. Wakes up. There's another cake. Falls asleep. So it goes on. And then he went in the strength of that bread of God until he got to Mount Horeb. And then the Lord spoke to him. And a still small voice. And he said, Lord, he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah opens his heart to the Lord. See, God sustained him. He said, Elijah, you've gone past the point of physical endurance. And he let him sleep. He said, Elijah, <clears throat> I haven't finished with you yet. I'll sustain you until I can really talk to you. And lifted him out of his discouragement there at Mount Horeb. And he says, Elijah, the trouble is you need a helper. And you're going to get one called Elisha. And you say, yeah, but that's bad because Elijah should. Now stop it. He had a helper for 13 years because the task in front of him was beyond the strength of a normal man. And God met him where he was. And as it were, he gave him that way of escape. Don't stay in discouragement. Go in the strength of the bread of God until you get to Mount Horeb where you'll find that God was not in the storm, but in the still small voice of peace and quiet. And he will say unto you in the midst of the greatest trouble, Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it fear. Wherever we're at this morning, whoever you are this morning, can I say to you, press forward towards the mark. We have a God who is the God of all encouragement, greater than Satan, the spirit of discouragement. We do face storms in life, real storms. If you've got to go somewhere in a storm, how do you manage? You say, well, I just go out and I put up the umbrella. Oh, come on. I'm not talking about a shower of rain. I'm talking about a real storm. It blows the jolly thing inside out. You hear the idea? Think of yourself as in some remote part, some exposed area. I, I saw it in the fishermen in Scotland on the coast there when they would go out to their boats and the years gone by and the weather would be terrible sometimes. They'd cover themselves in every kind of protection. And you'd see them, they, they've got a purpose, they've got a goal to get to, and you'd see them walking and their head would be just down slightly, you know, like that. And they're bent forward into the wind because the wind is opposing them, right? This is a storm of life. This is a picture. And you press forward step by step, never stopping, you'll be blown over, never turning, allowing it to turn you around, but fixedly on the mark, you're marching forward towards the prize. Your head is bowed in prayer. Your spirit is stooped in dependence and humility, drawing on every strength that comes from God. And with your hand in the hand of the Master, the God of all encouragement. You press forward toward the mark. Fellow Christian this morning, press forward. Move on. We'll stem the storm. It won't be long. We'll anchor by and by in the haven of eternal rest with Jesus ever nigh. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it fear. Let's pray.
Lord, we do just ask that in some way this morning our hearts might be lifted up. Deliver us from the, the pain of discouragement. Deliver us from the lack of fear, the, the sense of fear and the lack of faith. Help us to run with endurance <clears throat> the race set before us, looking off unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. Lord, we just give thanks for the comfort of the scriptures. We give thanks for the word of God that strengthens our souls. And we part looking above and pressing on to the God who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be that glory and praise and worship in his precious name. Amen.